So, can we get this slide up? Yes, great. So again, we're talking about the cross. And uh, I think we have, yes, we got two more sermons in the series after today. And last week we looked at the cross in ambition. And we saw that the cross is the ultimate example of what should be the ambition of every Christian. And that is to first love God and then to love your neighbor. And we heard that every ambition uh, we have should serve this great ambition of loving God and loving your neighbor. And I also contrasted all of that to some of the ways the world encourages us to think about ambitions, trying to show you, you know, that the world essentially encourages us to follow all sorts of ambitions which don't have as their end point love for God, right? Well, another problem with ambitions that I didn't mention last week is that they often, they often just don't work out. And uh, that can be hard for some of us. Well, if you're in that camp, if you have ambitions that failed, uh, then today is the sermon for you because today we're looking at the cross and failure. And be- before I start, I want, I want to say this, right? D- these kinds of sermons that we've been doing for the last uh, you know, six, seven weeks in, in this series, they're called thematic or topical sermons, right? So, you know, you take a topic, uh, you create your sermon around that topic, as opposed to most sermons which are created around a certain biblical text, right? Now, it's not my preferred way of doing sermons because when I do them, I feel I tend to put a lot more focus on myself and I draw attention to myself and I'm, I'm uncomfortable with that, you know? It's, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. Anyway, you know, and I, like I try to do what needs to be done, don't get me wrong, but I, that's neither here nor there, Right? The thing I want you to know is, is that I was telling all of that um, that I just told you to my wife during the week. And when I was finished, she said, well, what are you talking about next Sunday? And I said to her, I was going to be doing a talk on the cross and the failure. And so she said, well, there'll definitely be a lot of you in that sermon. <laughs> right? No. Of course, right, I'm not just telling you a joke. What she's referring to is that if I were in need of any stories of failure, I wouldn't have to go too far to find some, right? Now, that's funny, and it's true, but it also misses the point of what we're talking about today because everyone should be able to look at their own life and fill this sermon with some of their own stories. Here's, here's the bottom line, folks, right? This sermon today, we, we all need this one. If you come out of this today and the first thing you're thinking is, well, I hope she was listening to him. No, this is for us. I mean, look, maybe some people might need to hear it more than you. But if you think this doesn't apply to you, then we do have a problem, right? Failure seems to be a constant thing in our lives. Sometimes it's harder than others. You fail to do what you're supposed to do and you get covered in guilt. And you can't get back up again. Or maybe you, get, you don't get back up in, again for a few days. You know, and you say, how? How am I supposed to follow you, O Lord, when I can't even do this one thing that you asked me to do? Some of us have turned certain areas of our lives into a no-go area for the Holy Spirit. We have only seen repeated failures in that area, so we don't talk to God about it anymore. We don't even talk to ourselves about it anymore. It's just over there in the corner of our mind, and that's where we leave it. And in our real life, we stay away from anything that might force us to talk or even think about it. 
And of course, some of us, maybe all of us, have had at one time or another a really bad failure. One that if we could reverse the clock and go back and change it, we definitely would. I got about four or five of those. Most of the time, though, we interact with failure in ways that are not as dramatic. You know, failure is just a part of everyday life. You fail to love. So today, we're going to look at what does the cross have to say to all of this? What does the cross do in relation to all of this? And to do that, let's firstly look at the story of Peter and his failure. Peter's denial of Jesus is a a classic case of betrayal, of public failure, of public shame. And sometimes when you read the gospel, it almost feels like Peter was being set up from the start. You see guys like, like Peter in films all the time. When you first meet him in the story, he's loud and brash and full of himself. And even though he often does the right thing, you kind of feel like he has an underlying cockiness that needs to be dealt with. Which is what we see with Peter, isn't it? And as is often the case with those guys in films, Peter's road to humility doesn't come with just one event. He's brave enough to walk in water, and he does it for a few steps, but then his fears and his doubts engulf him, and he starts to sink. He very publicly disagrees with uh, Jesus about him dying, and very publicly Jesus says he's actually speaking the words of Satan. And yet still Peter has things to learn. He's got to go down a good bit more before he can come back up. Now, at first, his betrayal of Jesus when Jesus was at his weakest was, it would appear, a final straw for Peter. For when the cock crows, he disappears in shame. And if you didn't know the end of the story, if that was your first time reading it, you would be justified in wondering, are we going to see him again? Is that, is that the end of Peter? Because we all know loads of people, right, who've done stuff like that. And that's it. Bye-bye. Is he just going to be another example of a proud individual who disappears once the bad aspects of who they are are revealed? But that doesn't happen, does it? He doesn't disappear. In fact, just before Pentecost, we see him amongst the believers, praying with them and acting in ways corresponding to someone who sees himself as a leader. For it's Peter who stands up among them and explains the Scriptures and directs them to choose a new apostle to replace Judas. So not only does Peter not disappear, but also neither does the story of his failure, or rather, should I say, neither does the story of his total betrayal of the Messiah disappear. It's still in there. And yet Peter is someone who we have two letters included in the Bible attributed to him. And most Christian scholars are of the opinion that the Gospel of Mark was written using the recollections of Peter himself. Now, that really is extraordinary. Because why would you include in a story that you have strong, almost complete editorial power over something that deals with your greatest failure? Wouldn't it be interesting if, as a part of becoming a minister or an elder, you had to provide an account of your worst failures. Would you like to see that section of the Kirkpatrick Memorial website? What happens to Peter that could allow him to stay in the game, so to speak, to not be crushed by his failure? What happens that allows him to essentially write 
about his failures in vivid detail for everyone to see. Well, we know from the end of John's Gospel that not long after Jesus rose from the dead, he goes and he sees Peter. And what follows is a very intimate and revealing conversation. Three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And each time Peter says, yes, Lord, I do love you. Now, what Jesus is doing here, is, I think, is quite simple, actually. He's overlooking Peter's failure, and he's looking at the man. Notice that he never mentions the failure. Or more than likely, the fact that he, he asked him three times is his way of acknowledging Peter's three times denial. But he never mentions it directly. And instead, it gets, to, gets Peter to acknowledge that despite all that's happened, yes, Peter still loves Jesus. And so crucially for us, that is all that matters to Jesus. Peter's failures don't, failures don't count. They don't influence how Jesus thinks of him. Jesus just wants to know, are you still with me? Now, the cross is not mentioned in that story, but it's there in the background. Because the reason that Jesus is able to overlook Peter's failures and focus on whether Peter loves him or not is because of the cross. All of Peter's failures and sins have been dealt with on the cross. This whole dialogue uh, between the two of them is essentially Jesus saying to him, I've paid for all your failures. All that matters is, are you with me or not? And the reason that Peter goes on then to do some of the things that he does is because right at the very lowest point of his life, Jesus comes to him. And so the lesson for us is, is, is kind of simple. If you want to be freed up from the grip, of your fail, the, the grip that your failures have on you, you need to start being more honest about them. Peter was forced to see his failures. You don't have to do that. Well, maybe you will. I, there's been a good few occasions where I've had to... But I'm telling you, you know, you could save yourself an awful lot of trouble if you just start being honest about your failings now. You see, one of the key ingredients in a successful, if you want to put it like that, Christian life is honesty. Honesty about your your sins, your failures. Peter had a number of lessons along the way, but until he betrayed the Messiah, he didn't know the depth of his sin. And in the same way, the quicker we learn to be honest, truly honest about ourselves, the better it will be for us. Now, some failures are accidents or mistakes, you know, and you can learn from them too, but that's not what I'm talking about here. Failure gives you an honesty about who you are, who you really are, that some of us need to hear. And let me give you an example. Um, you, you, I'm sure you all know the Harry Potter books, right? So the author is J.K. Rowling. And she was asked about how, or she was talk, talking, sorry, about how before she became successful and famous, uh, she had a tough time. She, she was a, single mom, broke, no job. She'd just gotten divorced after two years of marriage, and she was in a very bad place in her life. She suffered from a bit of depression as well. And she says that actually this failure, it was like a collection of failures within two or three years, was good for her because, and I quote, I stopped pretending to myself that I was anything other than what I was. Failure taught me things about myself that I couldn't I could not have learned any other way. 
Now, what Mrs. Rowling is saying there is essentially that had she not failed, she would not have learned what she did about herself. And had she not learned those things, she couldn't have gone on to do what she went on to do. You see, the other thing is, failure nearly always brings guilt. And guilt hurts. Or at least it doesn't feel good. And so the natural response is to shy away from it, to hide the things that cause us guilt. But we have to resist that because honesty is needed in the Christian life. Indeed, if you cover up your failures, you are short-circuiting your growth as a Christian. Consider these statements from the Apostle Paul, right? Now, Paul, he's, he's probably going to be up there with one of the greatest Christians that ever lived. And he says in 1 Corinthians that, first, firstly, he says in 1 Corinthians that he was the least of all the apostles because he persecuted the church before he was a Christian. You flash forward a few years and you read in Ephesians chapter 3 that he says he is less than the least of all of God's people. Flash forward another few more years, and in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, after talking about the grace that God showed him to save him, despite the kind of man that he used to be, he says, in summation, the following sentence. Here is a trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. So over the years, Paul's understanding of his own sins doesn't soften. Right? In fact, it gets harder. He starts out saying he's the least of the apostles, and by the end he thinks he's the greatest sinner in the world. And yet, clearly, Paul was a man who understood more than any of us the mercy and the grace of God. What's the connection then between these two things in his life? Well, it's two opposite ways, often at the same time. On one hand, the more you understand and grab a hold of what Jesus did for us on a cross, what he gave up out of love for us, the more you see your sins in a bad light. And conversely, the more you admit your failures, your sins, then the more precious his grace and mercy on the cross becomes to you. And that's good news, right? I got a T-shirt at home, actually. It sums it up. Um, Have I wore it around here? I don't know. Anyway, it says, Cheer up. You're worse than you ever thought. And God's grace is greater than you ever imagined. So as you can imagine, right, honesty is a key ingredient in this way of looking at things. If you're not honest, you won't see your failures. If you don't see them, you won't see the grace of God. Or truth be told, sometimes, just like Peter, God will do something to get you to face up what needs to be faced up to. Because in the end, he knows that you playing it safe or running away from guilt is not the best thing for you. The best thing for you is always him. But so many of us find it hard to believe that. We don't want to face up to things. We don't want to attempt anything in case we fail. And and so some of us deal with failure by never attempting to do the thing we failed at ever again. If you don't do it, then you can't fail. So the logic goes. And you justify it by saying that, well, I haven't failed, so I haven't sinned. Forgetting the fact that God has been calling you to try and do it all this time. And also, 
I know that some of us are walking around under a cloud of guilt all the time. It's just this kind of low-level hum. And we reckon that because of our failures, God doesn't really love us. Or we, we've heard it, but we struggle to believe it. Yeah, he's forgiven me, you say. Yeah, he's wiped the slate clean. But the slate on its own, you know, it's not really an attractive thing to him. Why, why would he love me? And the end result is that we find it hard enough as it is to face up to guilt. So the thought of facing up into even more stuff horrifies us. So, I want to end, right? It's kind of all depressing. I want to end with this, this story, which I think challenges all of these ideas. Hopefully, you'll leave somewhat encouraged. Now, it's a true story, but I don't know the person involved. And it goes like this. Uh, there's a young, a young girl is staring out the window of her home, right, one day. And she sees her older sister hanging up uh, the washing. It's her father's uh, shirts, right? And when she sees her sister doing this, she gets a sudden urge to go out and hang up one of the shirts, one of her father's white business shirts, because she loves her daddy, and she wants to do something for him. And she knows that if she does something for him, when he comes back, he'll be nice to her and love her, right? And she wants that. But she goes out anyway into the garden and she finds that she couldn't reach the clothesline. It's too high for her. So she looks around and there is this old metal rusty wheelbarrow in the yard and she takes the white shirt and she wraps the sleeves of it around the handles of the wheelbarrow. You know, it's covered in caked and dirt and rust. But she doesn't know any different. And she waits excitedly for her father to come home and for him to be happy with her. But instead, when he comes home and he sees the shirt on the wheelbarrow, he's actually very angry and punishes her a lot for ruining his shirt. Right? So that happens. Flash forward in about 20 years, and this same girl is now a woman. She's a Christian. And she goes to this retreat for a week. And while they're there, they're, the teaching is mostly focused on understanding that she is indeed a beloved child of God. All the stuff that I mentioned a while ago, right? That you're more sinful than you ever realized, but you are more loved than you ever realized at the same time. And as the week goes on, the young lady realizes that she has for her Christian life at least, hid from opportunities to do things for God out of fear of failing, that she is actually quite timid in her face, and that she is forever comparing herself to all the people around her all the time, especially Christians. She says, you know, they all do stuff that I don't do. God who's clearly more in love with them than he is with me. And <clears throat> during the week, she she would talk to this older Christian, a mentor, about what she was learning. And she told her mentor that she was beginning to see that she's actually full of fears. And she has this really small, distorted view of God and Jesus, uh, Jesus' work on the cross. And she also said that as the week went on and as she began to see that uh, something was seriously wrong here, this story of the shirt kept coming back to her. And she realized that through the years, she had begun to see her father um, in heaven having the same attitude as her father here on earth. I think that's a big problem for a lot of people. 
we mix up daddy down here with our dad in heaven. Which is a big challenge to us who are fathers, by the way. I just got just to gotta say sorry a lot, I think, is the key. But she realizes, like, you know, I've been projecting this image of, of my father here and how he treated me onto God above. And that's all wrong. And it was a great thing to realize, and she feels this burden of being lifted from her. She's got a sweetness in her prayers, all these great things. And so she goes and she wants to tell her mentor what's after happening, Right? And she says to the mentor, you know, I think now I know that if my father on earth had acted like my father in heaven, then when he saw me standing next to the wheelbarrow with the ruined shirt on it, he would forget the shirt, come over, give me a hug, and tell me that he loves me. Right? But our mentor said, no. No. You still don't understand. If your father had acted like God, he wouldn't overlook the shirt. He'd look, he would pick it up, he would put it on, and he would wear it to work. And when someone commented on the rust and the dirt, he would say, let me tell you about my little girl and how much she loves me. So, you see, brothers and sisters, right? At the cross, Jesus doesn't just deal with our sins by praying for the guilt or by paying for the guilt. At the cross, Jesus opened up the door for us to be united with him. And we are united with God and all that that implies the theological language is that we are united to him by faith and his righteousness is imputed to us. But the slate isn't just wiped clean. It's wiped clean and then he paints this beautiful picture on it that he loves. God isn't just our father who looks after us and then looks at us and watches us live. God is our father who delights in us. So if you're walking around under a cloud, cloud of guilt, if you've got something in your life that you, can, you just feel like, no, I can't, I can't move past that, you need to know that your Father in heaven looks at you warmly. He didn't learn anything new when you did that. He knew what you were like before the foundation of the earth. That's it. I'm going to pray. Father, um, thank you. Thank you that you overlook all that we've done, but not just overlook at it, but love us deeply, despite all the stuff that we've done. Thank you, Jude, that, that you've come into our life with a love that we can't imagine, but at the same time, we want you to, to come and start teaching us about this. I pray for anyone who, especially, I suppose, for anyone who has had uh, things that they did that 
they are guilty of, that they are particularly guilty of still. I pray that they would take these truths, that they are united to your Son, and as such they are a new, wonderful creation, and they are not defined by their past or anything that they fail to do. I ask these things in your name. Amen.